Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Sure. So glad you chose to be with us today. We are starting a new summer teaching series called Short Letters, Deep Meaning. I know you're wishing it was short sermons, but we're going to try that too. We're going to work on that. Old dogs can learn new tricks. I'm going to try. Okay. Um, But basically what we're doing is we know that over the summer, I I was looking back over attendance figures in June, July, and August for the last 10 years, just not so I didn't get too depressed over these last few weeks, I'm like, oh, apparently every year the numbers go down over the summer, and then usually they go back up in the fall. So again, I know a lot of you are vacationing uh, over the, this summer. At some point, you're going to go, wait, we just pray you come back, okay? So just come back when you're done, uh, but we look forward to uh, hopefully this season of you getting some time to rest and relax and be refreshed. So over the summer, rather than teaching one book where if you miss a couple weeks for vacation, you feel lost, we're going to just look at a few of the shorter letters in the New Testament, specifically Philemon, Titus, 2 John, 3 John. Some of the short letters, but you know here at Echo, we spend most of our year teaching book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible so that we learn the whole Bible together. It's all useful, so we want to make sure that we study all of it as best we can. Looking at a few of the short letters, why did we pick Philemon first? Well, at first I was like, well, it has my name in it, so we'll roll with it. So and then I read it, Again, and I'm like, this is why I've never taught this book. Dude, it's all about slavery and slave masters and runaway slaves. That's too hot to handle. Let's teach something lighter like Acts or Genesis or even Leviticus, but not Philemon. But here we are. Uh, And so if you would like uh, a little bit more detail than what I'll share this morning, you can scan the QR code, download it, um, and enjoy that. I would highly recommend... um, because I was traveling this last week a little bit, I did a lot more of my research via digital tools rather than taking my whole library with me because that's heavy to take on an airplane. So you'll see more links to audio and video that I leaned into. Highly recommend the sermon from Alistair Begg, one of my favorites, especially if you like to listen to a guy preach with like a Scottish accent. It's fantastic. Uh, my 11-year-old and I, I put this on in the car yesterday while I, he had to come along with me on errands yesterday. Um, and so we, I had him listen to this with me. And after, after he got past how much he loved the guy's accent, we had a fascinating conversation in the Target Returns line about slavery. It was, it was just one of those where you could tell people around you were kind of listening in. I'm like, well, here we are. I guess we'll roll with it. Um, it's a short letter, Paul's shortest letter, 25 verses long, written from Paul the Apostle in 61 AD while he was a prisoner in Rome. He wrote it to an individual which is unusual. Paul usually wrote letters intended to be read to a whole church. And while he's writing this letter to an individual, he also at the same time writes a companion letter to the whole church. So when he's done, he's going to send two letters out at the same time with the same messengers. One written to the church of Colossae in Turkey, the Colossians. And a second letter for an individual that attended that church and actually had a part of that church that met in his home someone by the name of Philemon. We know the relationship between Paul and Philemon at the time he writes this letter is that Philemon came to salvation in Jesus through Paul's ministry. Paul led Philemon to the Lord. Philemon was a wealthy Roman citizen who was a slave owner. Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, even though he's a thousand miles away, 
because one of Philemon's slaves ran away from Philemon, made it a thousand miles into Rome, and somehow runs into Paul while he's there. Paul leads this runaway slave to salvation in Jesus, and in the course of getting to know this slave, finds out that his master is Philemon. And Paul says, I know Philemon. What are the odds that you've run a thousand miles away from this guy to try and get away from him, and you run into probably the one guy in Rome that's heard of him? That's, it's God. Yeah. So this whole letter is a very delicate, tricky minefield that Paul's trying to negotiate here. And I think a great way for us to just get an overview of the whole letter would be for me to just read the whole letter. It's just 25 verses. It'll take about three minutes to read. And then we're going to watch a six-minute video from the Bible Project, who are awesome Christian people who are gifted in theology and animation. And they do, they're going to give us a, a six-minute animated overview of this whole letter. And then I'll draw out two ideas from it. There's a whole lot more than two ideas here. But we're going to just spend one week on one whole book of the Bible. You'll walk out of here today having learned a whole book of the Bible. One, one sixty-sixth of the Bible, you'll be a master of it by the time that you leave here today. But let me read to you the letter and see if you can start piecing together why this is a messy... Paul has a dilemma. The runaway slave by the name of Onesimus, he has a dilemma. And Philemon, the Christian slave owner, also has a dilemma. Let's see if we can figure out where the tension is and how Paul tries to address it. This letter is from Paul, the prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother, Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister, Apphia, and to our fellow soldier, Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, and I'm praying that you'll put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. Just notice there's a theme here. Paul used to call Timothy his son. What does he call Timothy here? His brother. And he talks about Philemon two or three times he keeps saying, you're my brother. You're my brother. You're my brother. Verse 8. That's why I'm boldly asking a favor of you. I love how he plays in this space here. Watch this. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do, but because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you. I could demand it of you, but I'm not going to demand it even though I could. I'll just ask you. That's what he's saying here. Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. The word Onesimus literally translated means useful or profitable. He's going to make a play on words here. I became his father in the faith while I'm here in prison. What that means is that Paul is not his biological father, he's his spiritual father. Paul led Onesimus to faith in Jesus. Onesimus hasn't been of much Onesimus to you in the past, is what it would read in the original language. In other words, the useful one has not been the useful one in the past. But now, he's very Onesimus 
to both of us. So Paul's making a play on that word. He used to not be useful because he was a broken, sinful man, but now he's become useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf, but I don't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you're willing, not because you're forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He's no, this is the, okay, now here's the bombshell. Here's the climax. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he's a beloved brother, especially to me. And now he'll mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. This is crazy. Watch, 18 is crazy talk. If he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. And in a lot of your Bibles, the font will change here because the font changed in the original letter. Paul would have dictated the first part of the letter to an amanuensis. And at this point, Paul would have taken things and written this with his own hand, in his own handwriting. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul even though I just mentioned it. He totally plays in this space of like, it's not the whole way to manipulation, but he's absolutely using their healthy relationship as leverage to do the right thing. Okay. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I'm confident as I write this letter, you'll do what I ask. Now, let me be very clear. Here's what Paul's asking Philemon to do. You got to get this. The whole message depends on you understanding what Paul's asking Philemon to do. He's saying, I want you, A, to forgive Onesimus. For what? Well, Paul says, Onesimus committed a crime against Philemon. Doesn't specify what it is. It looks like theft. Well, how does Paul know? Onesimus confessed it to Paul. And Paul is writing back to Philemon saying, I recognize there's, there's some unresolved business between a, a common relationship that we have. And I don't want to proceed until Onesimus makes this right. So I'm asking you to forgive him. I'm asking you not to prosecute him. I'm asking you to tally up the damages Send me the invoice so I can pay it off so the debt's satisfied, so that's not there. And then I'm asking you to emancipate your slave. Because he's come to faith in Jesus, and in God's kingdom there can't be a master-slave relationship. We're family. And it's inappropriate for you to relate to Onesimus as master-slave. You need to receive him as you would me as your social equal and brother in Christ. And oh, by the way, you owe me. And he owes you, so why don't we call it even? So that's what he's asking. Little favor, right? Just upset the whole social structure of the Roman Empire. And maybe incite a revolt of the 16 million other slaves who are going to find out that you did this, and maybe make all the other slave owners mad at you at the same time. 
So this is what I ask. And here's what he says. And even more, one more thing I'm going to tack on to that. Uh, please prepare a guest room for me. Because I'm going to come check out to see if you're actually making good on this as soon as I get out of here. That's not exactly what he says, but that's kind of the implication. I'm hoping God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. And then he ends the letter. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you his greetings. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Mic drop. Paul has a dilemma. Philemon has a dilemma. Onesimus has a dilemma. And through this story, we have threads of slavery, masters, slaves. We have sin, forgiveness, reconciliation, all wrapped up in this idea of this radical new family that we become a part of through salvation. So how do we unwind all of this. Fortunately, the Bible Project does it in six minutes, so we can watch that <laughs> together this morning. They don't necessarily unwind at all, but I think it'll be helpful for us to see this. So let's watch this together, and then we'll pull out two uh, main thoughts. Paul's letter to Philemon. It was written during one of Paul's many imprisonments, and it's actually his shortest letter in the New Testament, but don't let its size trick you. It's actually one of the most explosive things that Paul ever wrote. Here's the backstory that we can piece together from details within the letter. Philemon was a well-to-do Roman citizen from Colossae, who likely met Paul during his mission in Ephesus, and he became a follower of Jesus. Then later, when Paul's co-worker Epaphras started a Jesus community in Colossae, Philemon became a leader of a church that met in his house. Now, Philemon, like all household patriarchs in the Roman world, owned slaves, one of whom was named Onesimus. And at some point, these two had a serious conflict. Onesimus wronged Philemon in some way. Maybe it was theft, or maybe he cheated him, we don't exactly know. But afterwards, Onesimus ran away. Eventually, Onesimus came to Paul in prison, likely to appeal for help. And in the process, he became a follower of Jesus and then a beloved assistant of Paul. And so Paul finds himself in a very difficult and delicate situation as he writes this letter. He's going to ask Philemon not just to forgive Onesimus and receive him back, but to embrace him as a brother in the Messiah and no longer as a slave. Here's how he does it. Paul opens with a prayer, first praising Philemon and thanking God for the love and faithfulness he's shown to Jesus, to his people. And he then paves the way for his request with this line, I pray that the partnership that springs from your faith may effectively lead you to recognize all the good things that work in us, leading us into the Messiah. Now a key word here is partnership, or in Greek, koinonia. It means sharing or mutual participation. It's when two or more people receive something together and share in it, becoming partners. Paul's saying that faithfulness to Jesus means recognizing that all of his followers are equal partners who share together in the gift of God's love and grace. And for Paul, this experience of koinonia among Jesus' followers, it's not just an idea that you think about, it's something that you do in your relationships, which moves Paul on to his request. He finally brings up Onesimus. He says that he's become Paul's child in prison, meaning that Paul led Onesimus to dedicate his life and allegiance to Jesus, and so Paul and Onesimus are now family members in the Messiah. He's been serving Paul faithfully in prison, and even though Paul wants to keep him around, he knows that this unresolved conflict with Philemon 
has to be reconciled if they say that they're followers of Jesus. Which moves Paul on to his bold request, that Philemon receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother in the Lord. Now, this is a really tall order. Under Roman law, Philemon had every legal right to have Onesimus punished or put in prison. And Paul's not only asking him to forgive Onesimus, but to welcome back his former slave into Colossae as a social equal, as a family member. This is way more than kindness. This is unheard of. It's freeing a slave and then treating them like a family member. It upsets the status quo of the Roman social order. Why should Philemon do such a thing? And here Paul pulls a brilliant move. He recalls that key word from the opening prayer. He says, if you're truly a partner with me, it's that Greek word koinonia again, then welcome Onesimus as if he were me. And if he's wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to me and I will repay it. So in this request, we see the heart of Paul's gospel message being acted out. It's first of all about reconciliation. It's just like he told the Corinthians. In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So in this situation, Paul is putting himself in the place of Jesus. He will absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing. He will pay the cost so that he can be reconciled to Philemon. But Paul's message was about more than just a legal transaction. It's also about koinonia. Onesimus and Philemon and Paul are all equals before God. They all share the same need for forgiveness. And so the ground is level before the cross, which means that Philemon and Onesimus can no longer relate to each other as master and slave. They're family members. They're brothers in the Messiah. Or as Paul told Philemon and the whole church of Colossae, in God's new family, people are not Greek or Jewish or circumcised or uncircumcised or foreigners or uncivilized or slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all people. Paul closes the letter stating his confidence that Philemon will do even more than Paul's requested. And he asks him to prepare a guest room because he wants to visit as soon as he gets out of prison. And then with some final greetings, Paul ends the letter. Paul's letter to Philemon is powerful for many reasons. It's the only letter where Paul doesn't explicitly mention Jesus' death or resurrection, and this is not an oversight. He doesn't need to explain the cross with words because he's demonstrating it through his actions. Paul's embodying here the meaning of the cross. He has made himself the place through which Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled to God and then to each other. This letter also shows us that the implications of the good news about Jesus, they are extremely personal and never private. The fact that Philemon and Onesimus are now brothers in the Messiah, it makes their master-slave relationship totally irrelevant. The family of Jesus' people is the place where all are equal recipients of God's grace. It's a new kind of society, or a new humanity, as he called it in the letter to the Colossians, where people's value and social status, it's not defined by race or gender or social or economic class. In the Messiah, there are simply new humans who are equal partners, who share together in God's healing mercy through Jesus. And that's what Paul's letter to Philemon is all about. Do you find that helpful? Yeah, for me, it's super helpful. It's a great resource, great resource, BibleProject.com. They have their own website, um, YouTube, 
great resource when you're doing Bible study on your own. You want to get some quick overviews of different parts of the Bible. Super useful. Let's try and unwind this together. There's three dilemmas in this story that jump right out at us. Paul has a dilemma here. He's got a healthy relationship with another Christian brother named Philemon. And he led Philemon to Jesus in the past to have a good, healthy, strong, loving relationship. Paul has another really good, strong relationship in this story with Onesimus, a new Christian brother who Paul led to the Lord. But there is an, so Paul is brother to Philemon in the Lord. He's brother to Onesimus in the Lord. And now Onesimus and Philemon are brothers in the Lord. But they don't have a resolved relationship. They have a broken relationship. So here's Paul's dilemma. The world, the rules of the Roman Empire are, Paul is legally bound to send Onesimus back to Philemon. Because as uncomfortable as it is, the rules say that he legally belonged to Philemon. This was his servant, his employee, his, to some degree, property. And he was not emancipated simply because he stole from his master and fled. Paul knew he was legally bound. Paul also knew that in doing so, he could be sending Onesimus into a situation that could get a lot worse. He could send him back. Philemon could prosecute him. He has every right under the law to do that. He could be sending Onesimus back into a very difficult relationship if he were to go back in that town. And so Paul even says, what would benefit me most personally is to just encourage Onesimus, seek forgiveness from the Lord. Maybe I just write a letter and send the letter back and say, oh, by the way, uh, I ran into somebody who did you wrong. He's repentant. He wanted to tell tell me to tell you that he's sorry, but he's going to stay here with me. He's useful to me. And I don't have anybody here. Philemon, you got a whole staff. I just have Onesimus. So he doesn't know quite how to go about trying to make this relationship get reconciled. And one thing we learn very quickly is Paul says, I can't command you to do this. Forced apologies don't work. And forced reconciliation absolutely doesn't work. I remember as a child, you know, if there was a problem between me and my brother or my sister... And mom and dad would, you know, get in and resolve it and say, all right, you know, Phil, apologize to your sister. I didn't have to feel it in my heart. I just had to repeat a certain phrase to move on. Sorry. I didn't mean it. I'm sorry that you're just immature and you're being emotional. And I'm sorry if what I said bothered you. And sometimes it's like it's enough to move the ball down the field. But it didn't really work. The deep heart issues are not resolved. You definitely can't force reconciliation. You can't force two people who have a broken relationship with an unresolved crime between them to just sing kumbaya and be best buddies again. You can't force that to happen. So Paul is, this is a tricky one. What do I, what do, I do here? There's probably, there's probably more than one way I could handle this. What's the best way? And Paul lands on the side of, I can't move on enabling a broken relationship between two of my siblings to fester without at least giving it a shot to try and encourage them to reconcile because we're in the same family. And this is about an offense that happened before he came into the family. Onesimus has a dilemma. Should I have confessed this all to Paul? Now that I've confessed it all to Paul, he's going to give me a letter and send me back. What's it going to be like when I get back to Philemon? I'm going to repent to him. I'm going to apologize What's going to happen? Is it wise for me to get on the boat and go? 
or should I just stay here and not put myself at risk? And Philemon absolutely has a dilemma because on the one hand, Paul is asking him to uh, write up an invoice, let Paul repay the debt, be kind to Onesimus. Philemon's probably thinking just that very name, just even when when he reads the name Onesimus in that letter, I wonder what hits his stomach at that point. Maybe there's somebody in your life with whom there's an unresolved issue. And as soon as their face passes your mind or you see a place that sparks a memory or you, you hear their voice or you see them, you just get a knot in your stomach. I wonder if that's how Philemon felt just when the name Onesimus comes up in the letter. And Paul's saying, good news, I found him. He got saved. He told me about how wrong he did you. And he's repentant now. So here's here's what we do in God's kingdom, Philemon, and I'm calling you to do what's right under God's eyes. Be kind to him. Let me pay off his debt. Welcome him as you would be. Oh, and by the way, emancipate him from slavery. Set him free. And then... Embrace him as your brother and social equal. And get a room ready for me while you're at it. So Philemon has a dilemma. If he does what Paul asks, there's at this point probably a minimum of 16 million slaves. Between 10 and 40%, if we land 25%, 25% of the population of the entire Roman Empire was a bondservant slave. If news gets out that you can steal from your master, and as a result, they'll emancipate you. What do you think is going to happen? It's going to inspire an uprising. And what are all his fellow Roman patriarchs going to think of him if he sets this new standard for how he treats his slaves? Oh, you, you get saved, or you, you, know, you say you're sorry, or you steal from me, no problem. I'll reward you with setting you free. So on the one hand, he could start a total upside-downing of the entire Roman Empire social system. But if he chooses not to extend kindness, forgive, emancipate, what kind of Christian testimony does he have left? What kind of disciple is he? To say that in Christ, we're not brothers. They're still master and slave. That in Christ... There's still a hierarchy of races, of genders, of jobs, of professions. That God's kingdom structure, that God's community has to follow the rules of the social community. So he's in a dilemma as well. How does he respond to this? Let me lift out two points. But before I do that, I've got to kind of address the elephant in the room. This book absolutely talks about first century slavery in the Roman Empire. Let me just say very clearly, any slavery is too much slavery. Okay? Any slavery is too much slavery. Slavery in its basic form is man being inhumane against fellow man. It's giving some people rights and other people stripping them of their rights and making them indentured to, indebted to another man. And that's wrong in all of its forms. The Bible is not pro-slavery in any way, shape, or form. The slavery that most of us are most familiar with, sadly, some of it still exists today, sadly. Most of what we're familiar with, you know, between the 16th and the 19th century, American and British slavery was very much based upon ethnicity. 
and I don't want to try and make first century Roman slavery sound better or good. It's just simply different. And I don't want that to be a barrier, an obstacle. You have to understand what makes it different to get the theme from here. First century slavery in the Roman Empire was not based upon ethnicity. It wasn't one ethnic group stripped another ethnic group of their rights and put them in subjugation to them. Um, Within the Roman Empire, most of the established households had slaves. They called them bond servants. There's a couple different ways that you would become a servant or a slave. One, you might have been a POW from a Roman war. They, they captured, your, they, they captured your, 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 your empire, they ran over your country, and they hauled off prisoners and some of the able-bodied prisoners. Rather than putting them in prison, they went to work as slaves. Um, another way is there was a lot of orphans because of these times of war. And a lot of times the kids who were orphans found their way into a working role as a servant because they got room and board and food and they had opportunities for education, and slaves could buy their way out of slavery in the Roman Empire. You could, you could uh, get away where you could just, you know, you, you could pay your way out of that and move into society, and a lot of times leverage the education you have received to be doctors, lawyers, carpenters, managers, accountants. Um, in fact, Luke, uh, the gospel writer Luke, who wrote Acts, his backstory was he was he was a slave. He was an indentured service and got an education as a physician, was eventually able to buy his way out of it. And that's how kind of some of his story unfolded. So it wasn't like a dead end sentence. But the third way that you could become a slave is you could sell yourself into it or your parents could, parents could sell their kids into slavery to pay off a debt. Okay. So I'm not trying to make it look good. Slavery in all its forms is wrong. And Paul goes after that here. One of the big problems both insiders and outsiders of Christianity have is with the Apostle Paul, as they say, he was very pro-slavery. At the very least, he wasn't anti-slavery enough. And we can see that in some of those letters where he says, masters, be good to your servants, servants, be good to your masters. And people, you know, you read that at face value and it, it, and it kind of slams you right in the face. Um, I want you to see in this letter Paul taking a surgical strike against slavery by starting with one man who he has a deep relationship with And here's what he says in the letter. You can't call yourself a true Christian if you embrace this idea of master and slaves as a way of defining relationships. And he calls upon one guy that he does have some leverage with and basically says, if our partnership means anything, you need to emancipate this man because in Christ you cannot have master-slave relationships with other brothers. And he puts it all on the line here and basically does ask him to swim against the current because God's kingdom and the world's kingdom have two incompatible value systems. And God is calling Philemon to say, maybe up to this point you felt no conviction in your heart about wrongdoing because everybody around you is doing it. And even Onesimus makes no confession that Philemon was anything other than loving, generous, kind. The only way Paul would have known about the broken relationship is if Onesimus confesses it to Paul. Listen, I'm, I'm here a thousand miles away from home because I did my master dirty and I'm running from him. I, I stole from him and I used my, the money that I stole to finance my way over here and I'm just trying to get away because if I go back, Paul, you know how it is. And Paul says, well, who was your master, by the way? Oh, this guy named Philemon. You wouldn't know him. Paul says, Philemon from Colossae? I know him really well, and now you're probably thinking, Onesimus is like the only dude in this whole city. Who knows? I run into him. Here he is running away from his past, and boom, runs right into Jesus. 
Isn't that Jonah's story? Isn't that a lot of our story? We're trying to run from God and God's like, no, you know, you can't, I'm everywhere. So how do we unwind this whole mess? You see the request that Paul makes and you see why. There's a lot of messages we could pull out of here. I just want to draw, draw out two ideas. Again, I'm not trying to make slavery in the first century seem righteous. It's not. Holy, it's not. And I'm not trying to say that Paul was pro-slavery. He's not. But I think what Paul says is rather than getting on the mountaintops and tell everybody to overthrow slavery, I'm going to start with the people that I know that I do have influence with and I'm going to go to the mat one at a time. And what a great way. Rather than just shouting into the air, he says, I'm going to be a, do a surgical strike here. Here's a situation where I can start to help other brothers in Christ understand that even if this didn't bother you previously because your whole culture is doing this, I'm bringing it, the Lord saw fit Philemon for me to bring this to you right now that you need to have your conscience retrained. Haven't you ever been in a place where you've known Jesus for five years, six years, and all of a sudden he shows you an attitude you had in your heart that you're like, I didn't even know this was a sinful thing until now and now I'm uneasy about this. I didn't even know that this choice or this habit or this hobby or this practice or this entertainment or this way that, you know, this way that I approach finances. Or my, I didn't even know that this was outside of the way that I should be as, as, as someone who's like Jesus. But now God's bringing it to my attention. Now I'm uneasy. And now I'm questioning some choices that I made if these are really blessable before the Lord or if I need to make some changes. That's what Paul's trying to bring into Philemon's life. Well, if he does this, he might upset the whole social structure. Everybody's going to want to know why he did it. That's kind of the point. Because then he has to tell every time, because I'm a new creature in Christ. And I don't view my brother as my slave anymore. They are my brother. What an opportunity for them to demonstrate to the world what new community really looks like. So I see uh, two things I just want to talk about briefly. One is this idea of reconciliation. The other one is family. Let me lift out two statements that I'll just talk about for a couple moments because they're here. One thing I see in this letter is that in God's kingdom, it's possible. It's possible. It's not commanded. It's not required. It's not mandatory. It's not guaranteed. But it's possible for broken relationships to be restored through a process of reconciliation. Paul is very clear in his other letters God's main activity through Jesus was reconciliation. Jesus' job assignment, reconcile the world back into healthy relationship with God. That's what reconcile means. There's, there's, there's a financial way. You know, you can talk to CPAs and accountants. You can talk to Con. You can talk to Linda, all of our, Angie, all of our other CPAs and accountants, Keith, other people. Reconciliation is bringing all of your books back into alignment so that all the accounts line up, that this statement and this statement match to the penny. They might have drifted over the course of the month, but at the end of the month or someplace at the end of the week, or if you're Linda, at the end of every day, we're going to look at all those receipts and make sure that everything is accounted for. It is reconciled. It's all aligned. There's no accounts that are out of alignment. In more basic terms, reconcile means to put something broken back together in a way that it's as good or better than it initially was. And I want you to understand the limitations of this letter. Paul's describing a scenario and every broken relationship between two human beings has some unique characteristics and they can be very tricky. Have you dealt with enough people to know that sometimes these things get tricky? 
Have you looked around your Thanksgiving dinner table and been like, what would reconciliation look like in this mess right now? What will it require? Some of you are, I'm trying not to make eye contact with anybody because I know a lot of your stories and I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. But I'm just saying, in life, you have relationships with people. You've got family. You've got friends. You've got other students at school. Some relationships you choose, some you're forced into. They can be healthy. They can be unhealthy. And they can break down. And sometimes relationships get broken. And in this relationship, we have a a master-slave relationship that was broken. Legally speaking, it was broken. The slave committed a crime against the master. And he deserved punishment. And Paul sees this broken relationship and he has an option. I can get involved in a healthy way. I can get involved in an unhealthy way. I can be uninvolved in a healthy way. I can be involved in a healthy way. What are my choices? And listen, that's what, when you're the observer of a broken relationship between two brothers, a brother and a sister, two sisters, when you know that there's a broken relationship there, it's awkward, especially if it's around the same dinner table. Do you spend the whole night trying to keep them separate and make peace? Do you just not show up so you don't have to deal with it? It's like walking on a minefield. And Paul finds himself in this third person's thing saying, what is the right thing for me to do? Or what is a right thing for me to do to bring this back together? And where Paul lands is, I'm going to be involved in a healthy way. And so I'm going to try and inspire reconciliation between these two brothers. He could command it. In fact, he says, I could command you to do this. I could level up and say, listen, I'm your pastor, so just do it. But Paul recognizes two things. Number one, forced reconciliation is totally ineffective. So when you call your church and you say, listen, I'm not getting along with somebody in my family. Can you make them come in and be nice with me? I'll just answer you all at once. No. You're uncaring. No, I'm a realist. If they don't want to make nice with you, they're not going to respond. To, what am I going to say? Well, I'm the pastor. Ooh. I'm a police car. I don't have handcuffs to bring people in here. I don't have a team to sit. No. In God's kingdom, we deal with the willing. If you're unwilling, that's your heart. I'm not going to waste your time or mine. I have yet to get an unwilling person to be forced into being willing. You can force them into compliance, but compliance doesn't make reconciliation. Okay? It doesn't. That's what I'm saying. It's not always possible. There's got to be a few basic amino acids to make reconciliation work. And Paul's describing a situation in which the broken relationship happened before one of the parties was saved. A sin that was committed before Jesus. Now that person has come to faith in Christ and as a result has changed their mind about their past actions. Because it's likely he probably thought at the time he committed it, It's not right that I'm a slave and he has so much and I have so little. Therefore, I'm going to take and leave because this isn't fair and this isn't right. And even though the law says it's wrong, I feel justified in doing it. So I'm going to take it and run. And now he's thinking that wasn't right because two wrongs don't make a right. I need to own my part of this. Not every relationship can be reconciled. And 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 I'm tiptoeing on taking too long on this, but I feel in this service I at least need to say this. Please don't misunderstand the message this morning. The message this morning is not that every broken relationship in your life that God is commanding you to go and reconcile and make it back to better than it was before. Forgiveness is a command. Reconciliation is a choice. Okay? It requires wisdom. It requires grace. But forgiveness, we can't withhold forgiveness from other people. Oh, goodness, no. 
Well, why not? Well, I'll share those verses with you later. They're in the study guide. Jesus says, if you, this is what Jesus says several times. If you choose to withhold forgiveness from the person who did you wrong, then I will withhold forgiveness from you. Well, but God, you don't know what they did. They owe me. I do know what they did. And I do know that they owe you. You owe me more. And you want me to forgive your debt, but you don't want to forgive them the lesser debt. It doesn't work that way. Forgiveness is commanded and expected, and it's possible. It's not easy, but in Christ, we have the capacity to forgive. That means to cancel the debt, to choose it. I'm not going to live my life remembering that fence. It's more for your benefit than for theirs. They don't even have to ask for your forgiveness, but you need it, because every time you think of that offense, you're victimized again. You're hurting again. You're stressed again. You're angry, sad, frustrated, wounded. We want to help you move towards forgiveness. It's healthy for you. It's canceling a debt. It's not pretending the debt didn't happen. It's canceling the debt and just saying, I want to be free from feeling like a lender with a deficient, you know, with a deficient borrower. I don't want to live that way anymore. Feeling like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, de- I'm at a deficit in what life should, should, should be for me because of this person withholding. No, forgive. But reconciliation is we're going to get back and try and build a relationship together again. Listen. Someone comes and cuts my grass and they mow over the trees and they cut down the lawn and they, 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 they destroy my house and they vandalize the mailbox. I'll forgive them. They're not coming back to do my yard work again. I'll forgive them, but our relationship's going to be a little bit different. But in this case, in these circumstances, Paul says, I'm going to give an attempt at inspiring a reconciliation. I have six minutes, so let me move more quickly through this. Here's the ingredients you need to have to try reconciliation. I'll give them to you. They're all in the story. It requires all parties, whether it's two, three, ten, if you want to see reconciliation in a broken relationship, at minimum you need this. You have to be willing to assume personal ownership of your contributions to the breakdown. It does not say you have to be willing to make sure everyone else owns their part. No, 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 no. You have to be willing to assume your part of the ownership to the breakdown. Most of us, we stop right there because well, I didn't have any part in the breakdown. It was them. Well, as long as it stays there, there will be no reconciliation. I'm not asking you to assume their part because that's insincere and that doesn't work. I'm asking you to assume their part. In this story, we see both. Paul spells out what both of them have to do. And you're like, well, it looks like it's one-sided. It's actually not. Paul's saying there's there's two reasons why this relationship is broken. The obvious one is that Onesimus has committed a crime against Philemon. He stole, and Paul says it's wrong. Onesimus knows it's wrong. There is a debt. It needs to be repaid. And so in order to satisfy that, Onesimus can't earn it back. He spent all of it to get over here. And if he goes back home, you're going to throw him in jail until he can pay off the debt. Well, how can a prisoner pay off debt? You can't. Onesimus doesn't have the capacity to pay off the debt. And Paul says, Onesimus needs to own that. He needs to own that he did wrong. He does own it. But doesn't Paul also say, Philemon, there's another reason why this relationship is broken. is because you're in a master-slave relationship. And you need to own the fact that in God's kingdom, you shouldn't be somebody who looks at a master as people that are beneath you. You can't look at him through the lens of being a slave. You need to look at him as being your brother. And you need to own that, Philemon. You need to be willing with this man to say, I'm also willing to own the fact that me forcing you into a master-slave relationship exacerbated something in your heart. And I'm part of a new community now. 
and we should be in a brotherhood. So Paul asked Philemon to own that. Okay? So if you want to have reconciliation, you have to own your part. Willingness plus acceptance equals hope. If you're willing to own your part and, you'll, and you are willing to do whatever it takes to make things right, there's hope, there's no guarantees. But man, if you can't bring those first two things, willingness without acceptance is, I'll do anything to make it right, I just didn't do anything wrong. That's willingness without acceptance. Acceptance without willingness is, yeah, I said it, but I meant it. I don't regret it, so now where are we? You need those two things working together. You ought to assume personal ownership of your part of what caused it to break down if you want reconciliation. We can't get, why? Because then we're just gonna be, we gotta get down to the truth and the real issues and we gotta speak to them. Well, pastor, that's messy and hard and difficult. Yep, it is. Next point. You need to offer and or make restitution for damages and debts they've created. Now, this one deserves a whole sermon because you're already going to loopholes. It's easier when it's like, okay, he stole $3,600. What's the damage? $3,600. We write a check. It's paid off. That doesn't necessarily mean that the distrust and those other things went away with it. It just means part of it is there. It's easier when it's like property damage, material damage. How do you make restitution where you said something you shouldn't have said? Or you didn't say something you should have said. Or where you did something you shouldn't have done. Or you didn't do something you should have done. How do you tally that up in an invoice? You can't. But here's what you can do is you can at least acknowledge you're a debtor to that person. Say, listen, I said this and I was wrong. I regret it. I feel guilty and ashamed that I did that. And I know when I did that, it hurt you. And I can't possibly understand the depth to which it did. But I acknowledge that. You and I both know there's, there's nothing that I can do to pay that back other than to say, I'm appealing to you for your forgiveness and I would love an opportunity to demonstrate the change in my own heart to you. That can start to rebuild deficits, but it takes some time. Reconciliation, you know, forgiveness takes a moment. Reconciliation is a process. Okay. And that's what he says here. I recognize that there's a debt that needs to be paid off. Listen, there's a parallel to all these things. You want to be saved and reconciled back to God, you got to own that you're a sinner. You got to recognize there is a debt. Fortunately, in our case, someone's already made restitution for us. Amen? Next one. We have to extend forgiveness to those who have offended us. You see, Philemon could accept a check from Paul and still not forgive Onesimus. He could forgive the debt because the debt was paid off, but he could say, you know what, I... I'm not going to forgive him. I'm not going to cancel that debt. Forgiveness means we cancel that debt. And the fourth bullet point is this. It means then we work together. Reconciliation means we work together towards a new, healthy relationship that is no longer viewed through the lens of past offenses. The first three bullet points talk about, really the third one is the one that's commanded. You got to forgive forgiveness of those who offended us. What if they don't want it? Forgive them anyway. That's for you. Because it's hard to be mad at someone who owes you nothing. They do owe me. Then you haven't forgiven them. Why? Well, until they pay me back all that they owe me, how can I get over it? Well, then, okay, let's apply that upwards. What kind of forgiveness? You want Jesus to say, until you pay me back, well, I could never, I could never pay him back. You're right. Every sin costs one life. 
You want to go into your wallet? You've got one life to pay off all your sins. Well, I can't do that. Neither could Onesimus. Onesimus' only hope was that someone else would step up and pay off his bill for him so he could be reconciled. What's your only hope? Someone else stepped off and paid your bill. So how can you then turn around and say, well, then I'm going to go choke everybody else who owes me $50,000. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Withhold forgiveness, and don't expect God to forgive you. It's tough, but it's possible in Jesus. Here's the thing. You have to work together towards a new healthy relationship. What's it look like? We don't view each other through the lens of past offenses. The only way reconciliation works is if we decide we're not going to keep dredging up the past all over again. And when I look at you, I'm not going to see the old you. I'm going to see the new you. Not the old Onesimus who wasn't useful, the new one. I've tried in our own culture, in our house, whenever our boys come to a place of true repentance in their heart towards, towards mom or dad when they've done something wrong, which is very rare, once a year, right? When they get to the point where they say, I'm sorry, and we ask, you know, what are you sorry for? And they'll say, you know, we, we make sure we end the conversation this way. I forgive you, and you know what? As far as I'm concerned, we don't ever need to talk about this again. I want them to know that it's not going to be repeatedly brought up over and over and over and over again, that the next time that X happens, I don't be like, that's the 51st time that you brought it up. No, because that means I haven't really forgiven them. I'm just storing it away to leverage later on. Okay? So reconciliation requires those things, and they're all here in the story, and that's why Paul says, listen, for you to reconcile with him, Philemon, means you have to change too. And Philemon's probably thinking, but I didn't do anything wrong. As Paul is saying, you're treating him as a slave. But he's your brother. And in God's kingdom, there's no place for slave brothers. Do you understand how radical that was for Paul to say that to Philemon? He did. And I love that he did. Second thing, and the last thing I can share with you this morning, the second point that I have here is that in, uh, in God's kingdom... We form a new community that's not modeled after the world. We relate to one another as siblings in the same family who share the same father. And Paul says to Philemon, it's inappropriate for you as a disciple of Jesus and part of his family in this new life that you have to view another Christian through the lens of slavery You need to view him through the lens of Jesus. And it needs to manifest in a new dynamic, even though it's totally the opposite of your culture. This is what following Jesus requires because we're forming a family, not a hierarchy. And he calls Philemon to view Onesimus through the lens of family first, not through the lens of of slavery. It is an astonishing ask that he makes. But that's what God's kingdom looks like. It looks like us. Across this room and in our faith community, we are of all different ages, all different ethnicities, all different stories, all different languages, all different social classes, all different education, different sports teams. And sometimes you look around like, how did she get in here? You look at me every week and like, how in the world of all the people God could have picked to lead this band of misfits, it's him? I'm at the top of the list when it comes to leading. We're supposed to look like that. People are supposed to look at our family picture and be like, you're related to them? How? We have the same dad. 
And if we have the same data, it doesn't mean that there's a, a cool table and a not cool table and a, and a you know, table number one and table number 20 and first class business class. We're brothers and sisters. And Paul says, listen, Philemon, this is not just something we talk about. You've got to live this out, man. And what it looked like for him is upsetting the social structure. So Paul was definitely not pro-slavery. But in this situation and in this circumstance, he pretty much says to Philemon, if you're really a disciple of Jesus and you're really a partner in the ministry, you got to stop this. Well, let's play that out for just a moment. I wonder how Philemon received this. Because here's, the, here's what Philemon is probably thinking. Well, if I am, man, if I, what if he agrees and the Holy Spirit says, you know what, I shouldn't be looking at this runaway fugitive as a slave. I'm going to receive him as my brother. What's the next thing he's going to start thinking about? What about all my other slaves? Where does this stop? What do I do with this? Paul knows exactly what he's doing here. What about when my neighbors ask me why I did this? I'm going to have to tell them about this new kingdom that I've involved in, how it changes my... Exactly. Years ago, I invested in a, in a company. I won't name it. And I used the same metrics that I use when I invest. Let me just say, I should not give anybody investing advice, not trying to do it. It's just a total different story. I invested in a company, um, a young startup company. I won't, again, I won't name it, but it blew up really fast. And over the next four or five years, it kept growing and growing and growing. I'm like, we're going to be able to retire in two years. It, it, it didn't, well, I'm still working. Um, about five years after I owned that company, I was going through my news feed one day and uh, because um, I guess somehow the internet knows that what I invest in should link to news articles and it puts, I don't know, um, one of you that's smarter than me can tell me about that. But I read this article about this company and it unsettled me. I was like, well, maybe this is just one report. And I started digging and digging and digging. And the more that I found out about this company, I was deeply unsettled. And the stock's still growing and growing and growing. And I'm like, I don't know why I'm so unsettled about this, but it's making a lot of money. I just need to sleep this off. I just need to just forget about it. But it kept eating away at me. And the more that I looked into it, the more. And what I, once I finally figured out at the root of this, I was like, I believe the Holy Spirit wanted me to be aware of something that I'm partnering with here that up to that point, I didn't know. And once I knew, I was trying to unknow it because it would be to my financial loss. But I remember one day I just said to my wife, I was like, we need to sell this company. And my, you know, my wife generally trusts me implicitly with this, but she just says, why? And I, I said, because of this. And I listed the reasons. I said, this is what I found out about what they believe in and what they're doing and how they're doing business and how they're spending their profits. And I can't unsee it. And she's like, I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement. So I sold the company and then I thought, I own like 10 other companies in our little portfolio here. I don't know anything about them. It's like, I don't even want to do any research on them. <laughs> How far do I play this? Like, should, what about BGE? I don't have a choice, but I have to pay them electric bill. How are they spending? What about the place where I get my gas? Do I need to interview all the employees? And it, it took me down this rabbit trail and I was like, I have to find some wisdom and not get toppled over to extremes. But all I knew to do, there was one situation brought to me at one time and I had to say yes to what the Holy Spirit was asking me to do in that moment that day. Here's Philemon. I don't know exactly how this manifested its, his whole approach to being a slave owner, period. 
All I know is that Paul is asking him to start with what was in front of him that day and the conviction that he was hoping would fall upon Philemon's heart. And that Philemon in that choice would say, I'm not going to bend to the social pressure or even to what I thought was right at this point. Paul makes a good point here because Paul was stepping into the role of Jesus. Let me show you all the Jesus, even though he didn't name Jesus. Let me just read you these last few verses as a conclusion. Team, you can come because I'm done here. Uh, Worship team. Uh, Not just any team that would like to come up and pick instruments. Those of you that are prepared to play the last song, can you please come up? Um, Where do we find the good news? Here's the first thing. If you count me as a partner, receive him, or receive, or as I guess as I wrote, receive him as you would me. Well, that's the first place. Verse 17, that reminds me of something Jesus says in Matthew 25. I tell you the truth. When you receive one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you're doing it to me. So the first thing Paul says is, lean on my healthy relationship with you and trust that and extend that same healthy relationship to Onesimus. Paul says, if he's wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus stepped up and said, God, if Phil Nauer has done anything wrong, and he has, and you and I have the list, and we've run out of paper, put all that on my account. I will become sin who knew no sin, so that he can be made right with you through me. Paul says, I'm writing with my own hand, I'll repay, not to mention you owe me even your own self besides. In other words, Paul's saying, if you're struggling over what to do here, Philemon, consider the fact that you owe me too, and you owe me far greater than what Onesimus owes you. And you're thinking, that doesn't sound very Christ-like, but listen to what Jesus said. The master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on that fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how Jesus says, my father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Paul's not treading in any water that Jesus hasn't already laid the foundation for. Paul says, listen, at the end of the day, Philemon, If you're hesitant to receive him back because of what you think he owes you, you also owe me a whole lot more than he owes you. So can we just call it even? Jesus says the same thing to us. If you can't extend forgiveness from your heart, you've forgotten what you've been forgiven of. And it's hard to be a tight lender when you are a really big debtor. (laughs) That's what he says to us. I love this quote that I'll share with you at the very end. Paul's appeal to Philemon is powerful because Paul stood beside a guilty man and said to the owner of the slave, I know this man's a criminal and deserves punishment, yet the slave is my friend. So if you punish him, then punish me also. I stand beside him to take his punishment. This is what Jesus does for us before our master, God the Father. It's a tough letter, but it's a healthy letter. About forgiveness, reconciliation, broken relationships and the damage they cause, opportunities to get wisdom. And I just want to tell you, you might hear this message and it might, you might say, there's a broken relationship in my life that I have hope for it to getting better. What do I take from this? What I'd say is find a Paul in your life and talk through the specific things of your situation. Because every one of these situations is a little bit different. There might, there might be other op- options that the Bible gives us for how you deal with it. They're complex. What was the offense? What's the relationship like right now? 
Are they a brother or sister in Christ? Or are they outside of salvation? How long ago did this offense happen? Um, is a person alive? Can you communicate with them? There's all types of variables here. But I love the fact that Onesimus had a Paul to process this through with. And that God used that wisdom to get there. Let's pray. Maybe there's somebody today, I hope there is, that you don't have a saving relationship with God, but you've heard the gospel today. You've heard of a Jesus who recognizes that you, like me, and like everybody in this room, we are sinners because we've chosen to live our way, not God's way. We've sinned against God. We've sinned against his people. And we've racked up a big debt. There's a lot of punishment that we deserve. Everything that we've done wrong deserves punishment. Our conscience tells us that. But we don't really want justice. We want forgiveness. And we've come to the conclusion that we can't repay all of our debts to God. And so our only hope is that someone will step in like Paul did for Onesimus here and say, listen, I know Onesimus doesn't have the funds to pay off the debt, but I'll pay it off so that finally when you and Onesimus can, can be reconciled. That's what Jesus did. And that honestly, friends, that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to the work of reconciliation. He calls us to be advocates between God and people encouraging them to come back into an encouraging reconciliation between them and their father. Maybe today's that day for you. Do you know you need to be saved? Do you believe Jesus can save you? Do you trust that if you ask him to save you, he will? And are you ready today to surrender your will to Jesus's lordship? If the answer to those questions is yes, all you need to do is confess those things to Jesus. If you believe it and you confess it, he will hear you and save you. That's it. A simple prayer, Jesus, I need to be saved and I know you can save me and you will save me. Please save me. I embrace forgiveness from you. And I welcome your spirit into my life. Help me start the process of cooperating with you and surrendering to you as you make me into the image of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for reconciling me with my heavenly father and for restoring me in right relationship with all my brothers and sisters in this new family. Amen. With your eyes. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.